The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. Leave it there and then I'm worried that I'm going to be that guy who gets a phone call in the middle of the sermon. And I'm looking around like, why don't you answer your phone? Funny story and true that many years ago when I was a youth pastor, don't worry, Rhonda, I'm going to tell us, I got something, a couple things to say first. Um, they were just come out with these electronic watches that beeped, right? They didn't tell you your whole life, but they just beeped. And, and in between Sunday school and church, one of the teenagers got a hold of it and said it, so it would beep and the alarm would go off right in the middle of the service and I'm sitting there. Wondering who in the world's alarm is just going off in the service. And lo and behold, there's Kenny Prater up in front of the platform. And it's his alarm. All that to say, check your phones right now. Um, I, before I send the kids out, I want to say this. For the last couple weeks, we didn't have children's church. And it reminded me again of how blessed we are as a church with our children who, for the most part, are incredibly well-behaved. And, and I often think of myself, you know, the, that, that the adults are the real problem here. Uh, <laughs> and parents, I just want to say thank you for doing the hard work. Keep up the good job you're doing. And I pray that as a church, we'll be encouraging that. Now, my wife is ready to receive your children to teach. So go, kids, and uh, be as good for her as you were for us for the last few weeks. Now, I need you to go to Mark 14 in your Bibles, and I want to uh, read the passage for us this morning. And um, as I do, I want to uh, tell you that the... Um, hey, I got some more candy up here. Mia, thank you very much. Nice job. Nice job. Stars in heaven await that little girl. It's just going to be so good. <laughs> um, now everybody's going to be honing in on that, so... Uh, the Exodus passage and the Second Corinthians passage, we're going to be reading it in parallel to the remainder of Mark to rehearse the kind of presentation of Jesus as the Passover lamb given, but also that the mighty Exodus that happened for Israel is now happening again for the whole world. We are being taken out of our bondage, out of our sin, and out of our captivity, and we're being taken to a land of promise and to the eternal fellowship with God. The second Corinthians passage is intended to show us how we need to do ministry at this time. Paul said that the Corinthians, who I would not have thought were good letters of recommendation, but they were, according to Paul, they were his letter of recommendation, as you are um, as well. And ministry, as we read through 3, 4, 5, 6 of Second Corinthians, needs to be done in a way then that, that the power of God that brought Israel out of Egypt, that raised Jesus from the dead, is just working in our congregation, God willing, for the effectiveness of ministry in the region in which uh, we do ministry. Mark 14, keep those things in mind then as we read and go through the remainder of Mark's gospel. Beginning in verse 12, it's on the first day of unleavened bread that they sacrificed the Passover lamb and his disciples said to him, where will you go 
and have us prepare for you to eat the Passover. And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to one another, it is I, is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. He took a cup when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Amen. The word of the Lord. The path of the righteous, the proverb says, is like the dawn. It's like the light of the dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They know not over what they stumble. Today and next week and over the next few weeks, actually, we are going to see that proverb coming to pass as the righteous one, Jesus Christ, shines brighter and brighter like the dawn until the fullness of the day, and at the same time, the wicked, like the deep darkness, not knowing over what they stumble. As we come to this passage, I would encourage us to consider it as sacred ground. Sacred ground. I understand and appreciate the sentiment when on Christmas Eve we sing, O Holy Night. But I would encourage us to fall on our knees and to hear the angel voices as we consider the night in which Jesus being betrayed to be a holy night as well. On the night of the birth of Jesus, it was the census that filled the town of Bethlehem with people on the night of his betrayal, it was Passover that filled Jerusalem. On the night of the birth of Jesus, the angels met the shepherds on the hillside. On the night of the betrayal, the forces of evil gathered under the cloak of darkness in the garden. The kiss that Mary, the mother of Jesus, would have given to Jesus in his infancy is now replaced by the kiss of a betrayer. On the night of the birth of Jesus, the humble shepherds gathered in the stable, along with Mary and Joseph, to worship the newborn king. 
But on the night of the betrayal, powerful religious men, wealthy men, gathered to bring false witness and dishonor their king by mocking, physically abusing, and then turning him over to Roman authorities. It was after the birth of Jesus that King Herod sent soldiers to seek and destroy the newborn king, but an angel warned Joseph in a dream to flee to Egypt. But after the betrayal of Jesus, no angel was sent. No deliverance would come. Brothers and sisters, the night of the betrayal of Jesus is indeed a holy night, and may God help us today and in the weeks to come to see it more clearly so that we bow and worship the crucified, risen, ascended, and exalted Savior King. Three questions are asked in our passage that serve as markers directing us then to the main point of the text. The first question in verse number 12, the disciples asked Jesus, where will you have us go and prepare you to eat the Passover? The disciples, of course, did not know that at this very moment they were going to be eating their last Passover Something that they had done for the entirety of their lives was about to come to an end. As the pure and perfect Son of God, Jesus, the Lamb of God, would be slain on behalf of his people. The second question is within verses 13 to 16. And Jesus asked the disciples, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? It's a bit of a riddle, isn't it? Because Jesus uh, sends the disciples out to mysteriously somehow find a room. It sounds a lot like what happened just a few days prior when he sends them into the city looking for a ride. And he says, go find a donkey tied to a post and when you find it, take it. And the guy's going to say to you, why are you taking my donkey? And you're going to say, well, the Lord has need of it. And the same kind of arrangement is done for the, the Passover feast, the room where they would hold the feast. I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that although Jesus is now in the shadow of the cross, he is still setting the agenda. He is taking care of every detail as the time comes near for him to be delivered over and crucified. The third question is asked in the upper room, in verse number 19, is it I? Is it I? As I preached last week, the power of evil is indeed great, but the power of God unto salvation is infinitely greater. At this moment, though, God's power looks weak, because as the darkness gathers, one of the followers of Jesus will be consumed by that darkness. However, salvation will come. Rescue, not just of the remaining disciples, but rescue for all who then turn by faith, repenting of their sins, trust in Jesus. In this room, the power of God seems weak 
but it is massively powerful, stretching even into this room where we are gathered together today when we repent of our sins and turn by faith and look to Jesus. It is, as I have often quoted Fleming Rutledge to say, salvation must come from outside of us and from within God. But it's offensive to proclaim that salvation comes through faith alone in Jesus. And and it has been that way since Jesus first said these words. Take, this is my body. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. How dare Jesus say such a thing? How arrogant of Jesus to think that somehow something he did 2,000 years ago could somehow save us and help us today. I've got control of my own life. I'm doing my own thing. That was then. This is now. Who does he think he is to say that something he's about to do is supposed to have any effect on my life today? How self-exalting to think that he alone can provide what is necessary to save us. But let's not forget that these words that Jesus speaks had already created a wave of opposition towards them uh, from the religious leaders. Cannibalism was not part of the food pyramid of Judaism. Jesus, of course, knew this. But it didn't stop him from offending the hearers when he said, as the Apostle John records it in John 6, whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. My flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me, I live by the Father. So he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. What an offense. What a thing for Jesus to say. But think about those eight words that he speaks in the upper room. This is my body. This is my blood. The hope of eternal life for the church rests on those words being completely true. We know that God provided bread for Israel with the miracle of manna from the wilderness. We know that Jesus took loaves of bread and he blessed them and he gave them the hungry crowds. But now he is saying that his body somehow is bread that will be broken open and that through an act of faith by which we believe him that we then are united to him. And he is saying that somehow his blood is the blood of the covenant. And those words, the blood of the covenant, aren't just any arrangement of words. They would have immediately have brought to mind a lesson 
for the disciples, a lesson they would have learned in catechism when they were very little in the synagogue. But Jesus takes those words, a fundamental truth of Judaism, and he makes them his own. This phrase, the blood of the covenant, is first spoken by Moses as the law is given. And I don't have time to read it all to you, but if you want to see how holy this night actually is, how holy the events that unfold actually are, then read Exodus 20 to Exodus 24. In chapter 20 of Exodus, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments are given. In chapter 24, the covenant that God is making with his people is ratified. And you want to know how it's ratified? Sure you want to know how it's ratified. It's ratified as Moses takes a basin of blood. He takes half of it and he throws it on an altar that he has constructed. And then he takes the other half and he throws it on the people. And as he performs this sacramental act, he says, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. And Jesus takes that phrase, the blood of the covenant, and on the night in which he is betrayed, he says, this is my blood. It is the blood of the covenant. Who made it? According to uh, Moses in Exodus, the Lord made it. Who did the Lord make it with? He made it with his people. In accordance with what did he make it? He made it in accordance with all of these words that were written. You know, if you're one of those people who are blessed, you can go to a, well, I don't think we use chalkboards anymore, but whatever, you whiteboards or whatever you're using now, and you can actually draw a straight line. Like, I think that's a spiritual gift. God bless you. You can do that. Because I can't. But you know what? In your mind, maybe you can. You can take a, a, a marker and just a planet there in Exodus 20. And draw a straight line right through Exodus 24. Draw through all of the sins and failures of God's people. And let that end with an exclamation mark right here in the upper room with Jesus. Who says, my blood is the blood of the covenant. It's for you. It's for you. This is why we say that salvation is through Jesus and it's through Jesus alone. And we might want to ask, how, how do we respond then to the criticism that we, like Jesus, received when we say that salvation comes through Jesus alone? In a day of self-salvation. In a day when everybody thinks they can do it their own way. How do we as Bible people Respond to the criticism when people say, how dare you say that there's only one way of salvation and that salvation is through Jesus Christ. Well, I think we simply respond as Peter responded, let God be true and every man a liar. To not say that Jesus alone saves is an offense of galactic proportions. It is as R.C. Sproul said, it's cosmic treason, for it is an offense against the holiness of God. Thank you, brother. 
to say that God does not save alone through Jesus is a massive offense. The offense is not found in saying it. The offense is found in not saying it loudly. The offense is found in not saying it plainly. The offense is found in not saying it with spirit-filled, apostolic-like conviction. And in a day of accommodation, the church must not drift from embracing the fullness of what it means when we come to this feast and say, this is the body of Christ which is given for you. This is the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. For just as that first covenant was ratified in blood and given in accordance with the holy commands of God, so too we eat, we drink from a new covenant ratified in the blood of Jesus Christ, given to us through His Spirit, who has brought it into words, the living Word of God, the bread, for man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. And if I haven't convinced you, if you think I'm out on a long plank all by myself, then believe what the writer of the book of Hebrews says when he brings together these scenes. In chapter 9, beginning in verse 18, therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop. He sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tents and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with, a, with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sins. So with that backdrop in mind, we can now answer the three questions in the text. Jesus, where would you have us go to prepare the Passover? And Jesus' answer, it's already prepared. But to eat of it, you must come with a heart of repentance and humility turning from your sins and by faith trusting in me so that you receive life. And, and, and in his name then, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, the church would ask everyone who was in hearing, everyone who was in this room, have you done that? Have you, by faith, with repentance over your sins, turned to Jesus Christ and his blood alone to save you from your sins? Not, not the labors of my hands did the righteous law of God demand. It is in Christ, and it is in Christ alone. And then the second question, where is the guest room for Passover? And, and, 
Jesus would again say, hey, it's found in me. It's found in me. And this is why the church proclaims that he is the pure and perfect Savior. He is the one who, if you were to get out your, your, uh, you know, your light and shine it into the cracks and crevices of his life, you would not find anything leavened. The pure and perfect holy God made ready then to bring an end to Passover by becoming the final offering for Passover. It is here in the upper room that we see the priestly work of Jesus coming into clear light as he is initiating the action, as he is acting on behalf of his people. And in doing so, he provides then a feast for us. A feast in which we share, a feast that within the community of God's people, we encounter time and again the person and the work of Jesus Christ. An encounter that was first acted out by Moses, that the writer of Hebrews explains for us, that Jesus presents in his own body. It is an encounter with a triune God that Todd prayed over earlier, the living God who by oath has consigned himself to our salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ. It is in every way a holy, terrifying mystery that has been revealed to us through which we are invited into eternal life with God in Christ. And so our joy then is found in the invitation given, take, eat, hear, drink, all of it. You, you might be asking, well, why should I? Why need I? Why do I need to do that? Well, it's because that third question still looms over us. Is it I? Am I the betrayer? Am I the problem in the room? How you answer that question reveals what you understand about the gospel. Because the gospel would say, yes, it is I. And yet through Jesus, it's not. And this is why coming to the table is so very important. The table is a feast of joy for the church. We indeed are sinners, and yet when we come to this table, we announce again and again that through the gospel of forgiveness of sins, we are set free. We are not sinners. We come to the feast, and we are reminded of two truths that stand like pillars upholding the whole of the church. The first truth found in this great word, expiation, and the second truth found in this great word, propitiation. For to expiate then is to remove sin. To propitiate then is to satisfy. And Jesus does both. It is through faith in him that our sins are removed. And let me remind us of something. Jesus did not die a brutal death by crucifixion for our bad choices. Jesus did not die a brutal death 
my crucifixion for my wrong decisions. Jesus did not hang in agony and blood for our missteps. He was crucified for our sins. And in the holy mystery of his death, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Our sins removed, expiated through Christ. But the wrath of God satisfied as Jesus in becoming sin on our stead takes it all on his body and through his obedience the holy demands of the law are not just partly satisfied, temporarily satisfied, but eternally satisfied. The blood of Christ received by God so that no other offering of sin will ever be needed. Is it I? You bet it is. But through faith in Jesus, it is no longer I. For the blood of Christ has cleansed us from all our sins. Well, I need to close, don't I? I paused too long. I was hoping. Thank you. (laughs) We need to draw together one last truth that connects these things. Exodus and Mark and Hebrews. The Exodus 24 passage contains so much that will help us understand the feast that we enjoy week after week. But when I read it, there was just one part that kind of stopped me in my tracks. I'm going to pick it up in verse number 9. Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, 70 of the elders of Israel go up and they saw the God of Israel. And when they see the God of Israel, there is under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. Now, if that's not enough, and that's a whole lot, but that's not what stopped me in my tracks. What stopped me in my tracks is verse 11. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. And they beheld God and ate and drank. Did you hear that? They beheld God and ate and drank. If there was ever an awkward social setting that involved food, this would have to be the most awkward of all. I have a hard time enjoying my food if I'm feeling awkward because I'm usually the person that knocks over the glass, uses the wrong fork or some such thing. I mean, just give me a hot dog and fries and I'm good to go. I'm golden in that situation. But with an economy of words, the writer tells us that Moses and the men with him had brunch with God and no one died. No one died. On the holy night of betrayal, evil would not only strike the shepherd, but the sheep would be scattered. Men chosen by Jesus to be his followers would utterly fail him. 
but through the power of God, which is unto salvation, they would be restored so that they can enjoy the feast that the Lord has given to his church. And here we are this morning. Like the apostles of old, we the redeemed come and we have a meal with God in the name of Jesus. And we, we live out once again what the writer of the book of Hebrews said to the church. Let us draw near with a true heart of full assurance of faith. Let our hearts be sprinkled from an evil conscience. Let our bodies be washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For he is faithful that promised. And let us consider uh, one another and to provoke unto love and to good works. Not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as is the manner of some. But exhorting one another so much more. As you see the day approaching. The day of judgment arrived for Jesus and for the world. The most important week in all of human history is reaching its climax. When Jesus is taken away and is crucified. But through his resurrection a new day indeed dawned. The victory of God won through Jesus his feast of joy at the table before us. But another day of judgment is coming. Another day of judgment is coming. And that day is quickly approaching. Are you ready? Are you ready? Judas wasn't. Neither were the disciples. Are you? Let me pray. Father, for the consideration of these holy things, I give you thanks. And now as they are considered in our lives at this moment, we pray, O oh Lord, for your mercy to be with us. We pray for your mercy to be with us. As we sing and think about the Lamb, further prepare our hearts then to receive the table before us. In Jesus' good name. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.